Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert Kennedy. Yep, and this is science for people who give a shit. Uh, yeah, it is. And we give you the tools that you need to fight for a better future for everyone. The context mm-hmm. straight from the smartest people on earth and the action steps mm-hmm. that you can take to support them. Correct. Uh, our guests are professors, scientists, doctors, nurses, uh, journalists, authors, engineers, uh, occasionally the politician it's trying to do good in the world, activists, educators, CEOs, investors, astronauts, even... Or Reverend. I was going to add author, but you said author. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter by using our favorite Twitter handle, Important yep. Not Imp. Just looking for a few more characters there, Twitter. Thanks. Or uh, or email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Correct. You can uh, also join tens of thousands of other folks uh, and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. That's right. Uh, Brian, this week's episode, what a great conversation. Mm. Uh, all the way from across the pond, despite fucking daylight savings daylight trying savings. to ruin it. Uh, we are asking, hey, Brian, uh, how safe is your data? Mm. And can your wine fridge take down a democracy? Uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Not uh, safe and yes, I think. Yep, 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 yep for sure. And not in the way you think. <laughs> no, 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 no. Our guest is Dr. Carissa Valise, author mm-hmm. of Privacy is Power and professor at the University of Oxford. That's right. And she's super great. And boy, did she put up with a lot of your going, really? All right. I yeah. feel like that's a bit, you're a bit much. No, but I mean, it was probably applicable in this one though, right? There was just a lot of like, woes and what? When I was like, but they were genuine. Tell us, tell us how bad it is. And she goes, okay. So when you yeah. wake up and you're just like, oh, oh shit, that's where we're starting. Great. Honestly, get ready for this episode, everybody. <laughs> it's good, but she's optimistic. That's always great. To, when someone is that deep and she's optimistic and she's like, no, this is how to fix things, that's my people. I'm in. Yeah, that, that is truly, truly inspirational. When was the last time you were optimistic about anything? I don't know. Let's just listen to this. Episode. Was it when I made you get up at 7.30 in the morning to do this? <laughs> I mean, it didn't sound like it. Happy to do it. Let's go talk to the good doctor. Let's do it. All right. Our guest today is Dr. Carissa Valise, and together we're talking about data privacy and how taking control of uh, everything from your phone, your computer, to your smart toothbrush uh, could help save democracy and uh, maybe the planet too, if we are lucky. Uh, Dr. Valise, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. We feel uh, very lucky to have you on the on the mic today. Yes, we do. Um, doctor, if you could just give everybody a little brief intro of um, who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, my name is Carissa Velis, and I'm an associate professor at the Institute for Ethics in AI at the University of Oxford. And I work in digital ethics, um, more specifically the ethics of AI. And in particular, lately, I've been researching a lot of, about privacy. And I wrote this book called Privacy is Power. Uh, which was selected as one of the best books of 2020 by The Economist. And there I argue that we should basically end the data economy, that it's too dangerous to sell and buy personal data for democracy, but also for individuals. It seems like it's time for someone to make that argument, considering where everything has gone. Uh, It's it's time for someone to say it. So we're very thankful you have. Uh, I've read the book. I loved it. I'm excited to dig into it today. Uh, Brian, if you could just remind everybody what we're all about here, and then we'll do this. Well, of course, our uh, whole goal with this uh, show is to provide uh, some some quick context for our topic at hand today, uh, and then we'll dig into action-oriented uh, questions and steps that uh, we can uh, do to 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 help uh, support uh, the mission. Um, awesome. All right. So, uh, Doctor, uh, before we get going, we'd like to start with one important question uh, to set the tone for this uh, fiasco. Instead of saying, tell us your entire life story, as as uh, incredible as I'm sure that is, uh, <laughs> we like to ask, uh, Dr. Valise, why are you vital to the survival of the species? I think that everyone is more or less aware that there are lots of problems with tech. And we hear all these uh, concerning stories about tech making us addicted and about tech having these and that consequence. But I don't think we realize that the source of all of those problems, or at least the vast majority of those problems, is the business model that uh, is about buying and selling attention through 
the cultivation of personal data and the exploitation of personal data. And that is really the source of our problems. And therefore, it's the beginning of the solution to those problems. Yeah, I think that... <laughs> Wow. Makes, my contribution. Makes, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. Again, I'm I'm so glad, uh, you know, it seems like there's a lot of folks that are standing up and doing it, but it feels like uh, this book and, and, you know, everything you're, you're doing around it uh, is going to help open a lot of eyes, certainly. So I'm just going to uh, just give everybody just a little quick context here, uh, just some, some backstory of, of where we are and why we're talking about it. And then you um, can correct him, doctor. Yep, and then you please just tell me all the <laughs> different places, all the all the places I'm wrong. Uh, that's and how, just call me Carissa, please. That's oh, fine. Oh, sure, sorry, sorry. Sure, sure, sure. All right. So look, uh, I was an early computer user. I'm I'm how old am I, Brian? Thirty, thirty eight, so something like old, that. I got yeah. on got on Prodigy when it first came out, and and then wow. AOL, the dial up, and my parents told me I had half an hour of either TV or computer at night, and mm -hmm. instant messenger, and and you're on email, and then. Uh, you know, I get to college and, and uh, you know, 9-11 happens and it's terrible. And then after 9-11, uh, there are things like the Patriot Act. And, and in the name of national and global security, we're asked to, uh, on one level, give up a little, a little of our freedom so to be safer. Of course, that went a lot further than we thought. And so, you know, we really started surrendering a lot of data. And, and we've been voluntarily uh, surrendering our data since, since uh, again, if you're about my age, since you got uh, one of those elusive Gmail invites back in the day, <laughs> back when it was invite only, right? Or when, when Facebook finally realized, uh, reached your, uh, your, your college campus, your university campus, and you started adding friends. And since we started uh, hitting the like button when uh, I was all over the internet and, and uh, using you know, Google Maps and, and Chrome and YouTube, and, and we don't really pay for any of that stuff consciously, not with our cash, uh, but with our privacy. And, and you probably don't pay anything to to someone like Google or, or Facebook or some of these new companies, uh, unless you're someone who's buying those ads yourself. Um, and yet, you know, those are two of the most profitable companies in the history of the planet. And so you, we've put your data and my data and all of our data together, and that's a key, in the hands of companies like these whose entire bottom lines, right, are dependent on selling that data, anonymized, however it they say it might be, for advertising and to governments who claim to use it to protect us. Um, but to some uh, who are standing up, like uh, Dr. Felice, uh, this is not advertising. It's, it's a form of surveillance. And it's amazing how powerful words can be and that we use them in the way that they can be most effective, how we frame things. Um, you know, storytelling is more important than ever right now. And, and that involves, uh, just like the beginning of Dr. Felice's book, uh, Carissa's book, uh, talking about that there you know there's data you're being tracked from the moment you woke up in your in your password vault app and everything you use and every program you sign up for and almost every device that you buy and it used to be uh, just clicks and it's understandable if you think it's just clicks still but it's not anymore um, it's your it's it's everywhere it, and from your GPS to your IP address to to listening to viewing um, it's it's the Instagram ads for for sweatpants when you've never consciously searched for sweatpants. These companies are not uh, full stop interested in anything but growth, uh, not the truth, not your safety, but growth. And they live and they die by it, and that's their form of capitalism, and that's the end of it. But it can be different, and and so that's what I want to dig into today is 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 how to think about this, how to keep your data private, but more importantly, why you should for yourself and your family, and for this whole experiment we call democracy and, and life on Earth. So, Carissa, just this week, uh, Karen Howe uh, published some incredible reporting on Facebook algorithms, a um, couple years of work, I believe. And, and she asks and answers the sort of holy grail of journalistic questions, right? What did they know and when? And, and to put it briefly, it's a, it's a wonderful piece, and we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, the answers were a lot. Uh, and they knew a while ago. And specifically in this case, we're talking about uh, Facebook and political and societal polarization. And what's most damning uh, throughout all of her reporting is it became very clear that anything, anything that stood in the way of growth would go un unfunded and unsupported. I'm curious, how, how does Ms. Howe's reporting line up with what you have discovered along the way in all of your work? I agree with you that it's a fantastic article and I, I really recommend it. And it gives you the sense of how Facebook is not really a platform that concerns 
with uh, getting us to connect with each other or having a good experience. They are concerned just about growth. And the article makes very clear how they knew that their algorithms were worsening polarization, that they were leading to extremism, that they were having all these bad consequences, and yet they still uh, prioritize growth. And that is a very common pattern these days. I think Facebook is one of the worst companies around, but it's not the only one that does that. And the idea is that the incentive is for you to be engaged for as long as possible, because the more you're engaged, the more you click, the more you see, the more you like, uh, the more you scroll, the more personal data they can get out of you. And then the theory is that the more they can use the data to target ads, and that's very profitable for them. And At the beginning of of the data economy, it didn't seem like having this business model was going to be so toxic. I can imagine how people were excited about uh, a new way of funding a project that seemed really interesting, like, for instance, Google Search. So I think at at the beginning of it all, they weren't the Mm -hmm. evil guys. You know, they, they wanted to make a project. They just wanted to fund themselves. But it just turns out that the most engaging content is the worst possible content you can imagine. Uh, The most vitriolic, it's fake news, it's hate speech. It's really the worst of the worst that really keeps us engaged and angry and wanting to come back to see what happens to the debate and so on. And the fault lies with them realizing that this was the case and not stopping and not prioritizing other things. And even to this day, not looking for alternative business models. And that's something that really worries me. For instance, in the case of Google, there is some evidence that as early as 1998, they were aware that a search engine based on ads was going to be biased because the clients are not the users. The clients are the people who buy the ads. And that uh, immediately inserts a conflict of interest. You said 1998? Yeah, so it hasn't been too long. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They published a, a paper about it, actually. Well, in which they mentioned, and, and the key then is that you know, in a sort of sliding doors moment, they proceeded to build that despite the warning. And it, you know, it, it, it we're, we we're fairly generalist here and cover uh, you know a fair bit of fair a fair bit of great and not so great topics on the show. Yeah. Uh, but it it really reminds me of 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 smoking and the tobacco companies and what they knew, and it reminds me of of uh, you know what the vehicle and the power companies, uh, fossil fuel companies knew about emissions uh, and, and climate change and, and what we, we've discovered from their papers. It's, it's not so difficult to track, the round, track this down, but, but what remains is the fact that they did it anyways. Yes, in the case of Google, um, they didn't want to do it at first. They want the Google search to be something like mm-hmm. an academic project. But after three years or so, they were desperate because they, they couldn't get enough funding and investors were be- becoming impatient and they were basically threatening to pull out and so it was very urgent for google to find a source of funding and they said let's just go with it wow Got so it. They, they didn't um, start evil like you said but they kind of became evil yeah and that's one of the lessons that we should learn from from this experience with tech that it doesn't take evil people to build an evil system so i don't particularly think that zuckerberg for instance is somebody yeah. virtuous um but at the same time, really, the system um, thrives because there are so many people who work for these companies uh, without bad intentions, just kind of being one more uh, nail in the system. And also because we cooperate with it. Now we know what it's causing. And it's our responsibility to rebel and say, this, enough is enough. This is unacceptable. Could, could you take a step back? Like take, I guess, take us through a day of being tracked. Some examples. Yeah, maybe some examples. So I I know you did such a good job at the beginning of the book, um, and it's it's you know mildly terrifying, but it shouldn't be to anybody (laughs) at this point. But I'm I'm not sure Brian got a chance to read it. And I know you know uh, your your book um, isn't out in the U.S. for for a few weeks now. But I I wonder you did such a good job in that first chapter. I wonder if you can give us some examples about you know uh, upon waking up, you know, the ways we are being tracked, and then uh, being at work and and things like that. Um, you don't have to read from it, but just to paint the picture for people a little bit about how comprehensive this system is now. Sure. So while you are sleeping, um, if your phone is on, most likely than not, it's sending information from all the information you collected throughout the day, all your location and messages and all kinds of things 
uh, to all the apps that you have installed in your phone. And as soon as you wake up, most people, the first thing that they do is, uh, is check their phones. And that sends a signal to hundreds of corporations that you've just woken up. Um, depending on who you slept with and whether they keep their phone next to them, which probably they do, they can infer whether you're having an affair or not, or whether you slept with your spouse, or whether you are sing uh, single, for instance. Then things get tracked, like whether you sleep okay, if you wake up in the middle of the night and check your Facebook, um, that might be a signal that you're not sleeping very well, and that might be interesting information for insurance companies, for instance. Um, then, okay, you wake up. <laughs> I know, it's really creepy. So you wake up and imagine you just turn on your TV to watch the news while you um, mm -hmm. make yourself some breakfast. And if you have a Samsung smart TV, mm -hmm. for instance, and there are others, that, those conversations, the conversations that you have with your family uh, while having breakfast will be recorded and send it to third-party companies who we don't know who they are. But there have been some studies that show that just in 15 minutes, uh, information gets sent to about 700 companies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. And we're bad. just at breakfast. <clears throat> we're just at breakfast. Okay. Uh, so then you go to work and you, um, you hop on your car. And if you have a smart car, it's tracking all kinds of things. It's tracking not only where you go and whether you drive fast or not, which again is information that is important for insurance companies, but it's also tracking things like your weight. So the, the seat on your car, in your car, is tracking your weight. Again, this insurance companies might be interested in knowing whether you're gaining weight or you're losing weight. And things like uh, the music you listen to, bankers are buying this information to try to ascertain what your mood is. And maybe, you know, if, if you're listening to music that is correlated with depression, then there might be doubts about whether you, you'll be able to pay a loan back if you're feeling um, depressed. And it just goes on and on. <laughs> I mean, it, it's non-stopping. You go into a store. And there might be cameras that are using facial recognition. They might try and be trying to um, assess your emotions, exactly where you stop in, in, in the store. And there, there's a technology that I find particularly creepy called audio beacons. And that's, so imagine that you were, you were listening to the, to the TV in the morning and there was uh, an ad there for, I don't know, a product you want, some, some shoes or something. Yeah, some really soft then, slippers maybe. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, you search for that on your phone and then you decide to buy it in your local shop. When you go into the shop, there might be music in the background and that music is going to emit these audio beacons that you can't hear, but your phone picks up. And that way, the company can know that you saw that ad in the morning on TV because your phone was there. Then you looked up the product on your phone and then you bought it at the store. And that gives them information as to how... Um, accurate and how effective their ads are. So that's that's in a sense, in a sense tracking all your so devices. So that last part is a joke, right? <laughs> that is insane. <laughs> I wish, I wish it Holy is cow. insane. I don't want to dig, spend too much. Too, I feel like we could spend hours digging into each of the particular things you just went over, and I'm pretty sure we're only at like 10 a.m. at this point uh, in your timeline. But for for instance, for that one, for audio beacons, how widespread is the use of that technology? It's unclear because it's not like companies are broadcasting mm -hmm. this information. So it just comes out when uh, something something bad happens or when there's some investigative journalism going on. So it's 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 really unclear. But my sense is that it happens often enough that you probably encounter it at least say once a day if the pandemic wasn't going on. If you were just mm -hmm. going uh, around your normal day and and going in and out of shops and supermarkets and so on. Like mo most people in, in most countries? You would... That's my guess, yeah, yeah. but it's just a sure, guess. Sure. Wow. Okay. Um, and then, um, you know, speaking of the pandemic, one of the things was, again, to kind of finish painting this picture, um, you know, a lot of folks, everybody had had to, everyone who was able to, let me put it that way, a lot of most white-collar folks uh, were, were sent to work from home. Um, and a lot of folks confronted the fact that they didn't have a lot of work from home gear. And so maybe companies, uh, if you work for a company stepped up and said, okay, we'll get you a monitor, we'll get you a computer for home or this or this. Can you talk just for a moment about what it means, uh, to put really any data into a work device? That's quite risky. Technically, 
the your employer is the owner of that device and they have full access to it, at least legally and many times practically. So one of the things that we have been witnessing during this pandemic is that there's more and more spyware being used for the purposes of surveilling workers. And that goes for companies like Amazon, which is uh, infamous for doing this kind of thing, but also just for, for other companies in which work people are working from their home and bosses want to have a sense of what they're doing. And the problem is, of course, that there is no separation between the public and the private sphere when we use our laptops. We're using our phones and our laptops in our bedrooms. We are uh, using email for personal and professional reasons. And it's really hard to separate those two. So once your employer gets access to that data, they really get much more data on you that they should have. And you had a very specific advanced uh, 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 example, something that I, I feel like I've always tried to be conscious of, especially when I was working for bigger companies, which is friends and family and otherwise using your work email, uh, contacting you through your work email and what that exposes. Uh -huh. Yes, this is very risky. So for instance, um, if you work at a university, that could be uh, if somebody asks for a freedom of information um, request, that all your emails could become public. And likewise, if, you, if you're using your work email and you work for a company, the company could access all your personal emails if, uh, if you're using that and potentially use it against you. Got it. And, and it, it, uh, it, it, it obviously, folks, you know, the, the caveat being here that this applies for everyone in your household, just not yourself. Um, and the way those devices and all that information interacts also uh, can go a long way. So I want to talk a little bit because one of the things, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a data engineer. I'm not a data scientist. I'm not uh -uh. a doctor. You no know, Brian, Brian, not the time. <laughs> um, you know, we make very clear that, you know, we don't, we, we're not here to go deep into, into these niches, but at the same time, um, you know, I was a liberal arts major, uh, you know, I, I can ask a lot of questions. I can, I, I've, you know, studied and, and love to think about anthropology and sociology and all the reasons people do what they do and, and how economies and, and um, you know, societies work or don't, or don't work. <laughs> and so I was really interested in um, when you talked in the book about autonomy, um, because especially, uh, you know, for instance, one of the one of the main ethical principles of medicine, right, is is autonomy, the ability for for people to make their own decisions unimpeded by others. We actually have a very difficult time with that in the U.S., uh, at least on the medicinal front, uh, as far as end of life and 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 things like that. Um, but I think about it in the scope of data harvesting for for whatever reason, um, and and so I I wonder about. With the with the with the pure volume of data that we input every day uh, to so many different places, and this is a little bit like the whole like is it fate or free will thing. But are we autonomous anymore if we aren't in control of what we see, and thus the inputs that go into our decision making? I, I know that's a little more Whoa. philosophical, but I'm really kind of curious how you feel about that. So, of course, autonomy is a gradient. Sure, So, of more often than not, it's not that we're autonomous or we're not, but rather, like, how autonomous we are. And there's a lot of concern that we are much less autonomous than we used to be. And that we have enough of, of an influence to, for instance, jeopardize things like, or at least, you know, put into question things like free elections. Mm -hmm. And there, there's always been a very tight relationship between knowledge and power. And this is something that we have known for a long time. So, for instance, Francis Bacon famously argued that the more knowledge you have on someone, the more power you have mm -hmm. over them. So the more knowledge companies have over us, the more they can try to influence our behavior and predict what we're going to do and, and, and act in consequence. But the reverse is also true. The more power you have, the more you can establish what counts as knowledge. So for instance, Google knows a lot about you and they can they get to decide what counts as knowledge about you. So imagine that you know you you may have, I don't know, um, a BA, but you might be categorized as somebody who didn't finish high school by by mistake. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. no way you can 
correct that mistake. There's no way you can know about that mistake. And yet you will be treated as if you didn't finish high school. So the ads that you will see will not be for high paying jobs. And the kind of opportunities that you get will be according to that mistake. And another way in, in which our autonomy is being jeopardized is that when we look at our screens, when we go and look at Facebook and Twitter and even the news, we have this feeling that we are seeing a representation of the world out there and that we are becoming informed in order to act according to reality. But in fact, many times, even most of the times online, you are not seeing a representation of the world outside. You are seeing a reflection of yourself, or at least you are seeing what other companies think about you. So if you see a scandal, a very like scandalous news, it might not be because it's true, but it might be because companies think that that's going to make you totally engaged. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a real problem because for autonomy to be real, for us to be to really be able to make informed decisions, and we have to be well informed. And if we can't get well informed because we're only seeing these mirrors of ourselves when we think we're seeing reality, that's a real problem. And and it also, you know, it comes into the fact that we are unable to have real discussions about things because there is no common ground and i don't mean that in a sort of moralistic sense but certainly that comes into it but in in the in in an actual factual sense about what happened you know we can go back to how um you know in in court cases um eyewitness accounts are always uh, a little tough because you know our, we're finding out more and more about how our our memory works and how it doesn't work and, and how we can change things depending on the inputs later but that also comes into play with with data and it can come into play with with dna and it can come into play where we, 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 we have this inability to come to a common place because we don't even we don't even have a fundamental set of first principles to to start on because those aren't being presented to us or being presented to us uh, in an equitable fashion. And so I, I think about sort of you talked a little bit about knowledge is is power. I, I mean America the has so many examples of this. I mean, you know, slaves uh w- w- female slaves would be would be raped and there would be children and those children would be given the white slave owners names and and their past would be erased and that's made um it's so difficult for black americans now to trace their genealogy and and where they came from and and how they got here and that was purposeful but i'm i'm also looking at what's happening today and going forward and looking at sort of the the, the people it's this it's a flywheel right the the people with power have more autonomy than than ever if we're literally defining it because they have more power over those levers that are defining what you see as as detailed in, in Ms. Howe's work and in your book how they're constantly tinkering with these algorithms um but they also have levers over uh, power over the politicians right through through lobbying because of the money they make and that helps negate the idea of one person one vote and you've got Mark Zuckerberg that has special shares that give him more or less unchecked power. And and yet we've got all these volunteers in the streets that are, you know, trying to retain American votes, uh, trying to make sure people aren't stripped for voter rolls. Meanwhile, the bottom of the iceberg is just being chipped away over and over and over. And so I, I want to try to think about how do we help citizens understand that's not just their their credit score that's being threatened, that our ability to change democracy and to change the course of history is also at stake here. I think you're right. And one way to think about it is just to look at one very common practice in data science, and that is the creation of an artificial society. So the idea is that the data scientist has an avatar of every one of us. So it's like literally like having a little voodoo doll of you on their screen. (laughs) And then they tinkle with it. So they show it an ad or they show it um, different kinds of content. And then they look at how they respond according to their own models. And then if they respond the way that they want people to respond, they try it on ourselves, on actual flesh and bone people. And then the idea is that you could influence society to an extent that you can basically design it. It's like playing God a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. Whether it works and to what extent it works is a different matter. But the fact that somebody's trying that should already be very, very alarming to us. And One of the reasons this is happening is because there's a huge asymmetry of knowledge. They know a lot about us, and we know very little about data scientists and companies. 
So one of the first steps that we have to make is correct that power asymmetry and, and that knowledge asymmetry. So on the one hand, we have to make sure that they know a lot less about us, and that's why it's very important to protect our privacy. And on the other hand, we have to learn a lot more about them, which is very important, um, which is why it's very important to read about these topics and, and, and get interested and understand better what's going on. And it's that last part that feels like might actually be the most difficult. I mean, so Google just fired in a row their top two AI ethics researchers, uh, both of whom identify as women. And and the next the next week, they launched a device that uses radar to track your movements in bed. And I, I mean, it's like next to, you know, the Facebook portal or whatever they call it with the camera in your kitchen. I mean, just no, no, thank you. No, thank you. And, and they said that, you know, they're like, the data won't be used for advertising, which is the same thing they said when they bought Nest, and that wouldn't be used for data harvesting. But the ethical questions around these devices and how these companies don't ask for permission, they ask for forgiveness, and then they don't care if they get it. And and the questions about the data that, that they input and are on the receiving end of, there, there's so many questions. They're so numerous and so powerful and necessary that you know, we, we need women like that. We need people like that, especially inclusive voices, the world's best thinking about this and working on it. But it, I almost feel at this point as if, I mean, it's just like when people say the market will fix everything, like these companies are not going to regulate themselves. You know, how can we trust them with this sort of research? It's like when when a when an agribusiness, uh, you know, does research on pesticides. Um, their business models are so very clearly diametrically opposed with the work that needs to be done. So as much as I feel like every company from a startup to a market leader needs some sort of chief liberal arts major question ask, asker, I wonder how effective those people can be and how, how that can be and what, what your thoughts are on the ways that we can actually get inside these companies and their practices and their black boxes. Do, do you see a way into that? Absolutely. I'm actually very optimistic. Oh, thank um, God. God, we need some of that around. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> we just have to look at history. I mean, we've been able to regulate every big industry that has ever come our way, including the first ones uh, that took us by surprise. Um, you know, it wasn't particularly easy to regulate someone like uh, the people who created the railroads. But we did it. And we regulated airplanes and cars and food and drugs. And now it's our time. So our ancestors took care of those industries and now it's our time and there's no reason why we're not going to be able to do this and i think oh, those measures are already being designed right now there's so much debate about how to do it and uh, when and and so like six years ago the conversations that we're having now would have been incredibly um, um, unbelievable just like yeah. com conversations about regulating rockefeller um in its time were like at the beginning were like unthinkable and then eventually it just happens. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. It, it's just like since, since those times, you know, th there is so much, at least in the American system, especially in the American system, there's so much money in politics and, and decisions like Citizens United have made, you know, a company equals a person equals a vote. And, and, and the dark money that's involved is just it's immeasurable. I mean, it's it's incredible how much is is in there. You know, when you look at you know, the folks that were um, voting against our next, uh, our new uh, secretary of the interior, uh, the first indigenous person to, to hold a secretary, uh, secretary position in a cabinet and how much oil and gas money they're getting. It just seems like the hurdles are, 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 I guess, are much higher than they used to be. But maybe my context is wrong there. I think you're right. You're right. We have more obstacles in the sense, at least in two ways. Yes, there's more money in politics. And on the other hand, these companies are much more opaque than railroads. It's easy to see railroads and what they're doing. It's not easy to see data. However, we have some things that are less um, difficult than they used to be. For one thing, we've already regulated big companies before, mm -hmm. so it's not our first time, mm -hmm. and that, that matters. And another thing that I'm quite optimistic about is that many countries want to regulate these companies. It's not only the US, it's Europe, it's the UK, it's Japan, it's Australia. It's New Zealand. And we can we can use that. In the past, we were alone regulating our companies. Mm -hmm. But now there is a global society that is very, very much aware that we need regulation and we should use that in our favor. Yeah, that's an interesting point. 
that you know these these companies, uh, so many of which are are U.S. based, are are so widespread now and such a part of global life that everyone is on board with regulating them in in some way at this point, right? It's not just U.S. railroads. Exactly, and and we will need that because data flows across boundaries and and, and across uh, borders. So we we will need a lot of diplomacy and cooperation. It is the time to revive those old alliances that we used to have between Europe and and the U.S. All right, well, I'm on board. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Carissa, one thing I wanted to, uh, I don't know, try to wrap my head around is how, you know, some of the biggest companies of our time build products that, that are free to users, you know? And, and how those companies represent uh, an enormous part of our stock market and our economy. And, and you know, it's because they've become such otherwise indispensable pieces of, of our everyday lives, but also because you know, being free means growth has been just so easy. Uh, and, and because our, our outdated uh, antitrust laws don't, don't solve for that growth, They've they've just grown and and purchased competitors and you know are just unavoidable uh, and, and you know a lot of that growth is dependent on our networks right on, on the people mm-hmm. that uh, we are connected to and with because data isn't uh, harvested in isolation right and every you know every single time you share a picture of yourself or, or your family or your kids or your friends which you know for me is a thousand times a day for most mm-hmm. people. Uh, on Instagram, you know, it's used to train facial recognition algorithms, right? How, how are we exposing friends and family when we share our data? Because I'm going to need to know how to apologize to everybody in my life. <laughs> One of the things I argue in the book is that it's a mistake to think about privacy as an individual thing. Yes, it is about personal data, but it's also about uh, collective data. So in, every time you expose your location, you're exposing things about your neighbors, the people you live with, um, the people you work with. Mm-hmm. Every time you expose your genetic data, you're exposing your parents, your siblings, um, your kids, right. your very distant kin. So every time you expose yourself, you expose other people as well. And that that can mean any 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 host of things. So it can mean, for instance, there have been cases in which Genetic data donated by people has been used to deport someone or Whoa. to, yeah, in, in very questionable ways. Yeah. It can mean that somebody gets their uh, life insurance denied because because of a genetic test that they, they didn't even do themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it can have all kinds of consequences. And many times you don't know what other people have as vulnerabilities. So you might take a picture right. and there might be somebody in the background and you publish it online and it turns out that that person is running away from an abuser, for instance. And you have no way of knowing that. So we should err on the side of caution. Always. And throw our phones in the trash can. Got it. <laughs> that would be nice. But at the very <laughs> least, not upload um, pictures without asking for consent. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> So, you know, despite all of that, I can I can still understand how folks have a hard time, and sometimes they don't want to. You know, if they enjoy putting their kids on Instagram to to share with friends and family, right? Especially during a pandemic when we're disconnected. But at the same time, I I can understand because it seems a little futuristic still somehow um, to go from. I bought one of those cool smart fridges that shows you on the inside what food you're out of to 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 Cambridge Analytics and and Myanmar and the state is using facial recognition against me as I protest a, an election. There goes democracy, right? It, it's one thing to talk about um, how 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 terrible it is when an algorithm doesn't show the same well-paying job like you were saying to to Black Americans as whites or how you know, parole apps get misused by their creators. But there, there's the, the broader, m- more dangerous consequences of this facade of privacy. I, you know, I, I think about, and again, they've, they've done nothing to fix these things, is, is Facebook feeds, YouTube recommendations, and, and the cool, used to be cool seeming Google search results that pop up as you're typing, right? They take information you've given historically and the people around you and where you are 
and they use it to anticipate the next logical thing you might be looking for. And, and sometimes that can result in some pretty dark stuff. I mean, we've seen that happen with YouTube and, and Facebook groups from QAnon. And then all of a sudden it's, it's misinformation or it's disinformation about elections or the, or the pandemic, your health, right? Protection and treatments and vaccines. I just, I, I guess, I, I, I'm curious, and I know it's different everywhere because everywhere has different laws, of course, around this stuff, but how have we not made it imperative that users' health and life is, is protected? I, I guess, how did we let it get this far? So partly it was just not realizing what was happening. I think Brian mentioned this, or, or maybe it was you, Quinn, uh, a, few, a few moments ago, about how our litmus test for whether something is a monopoly failed us. So typically our litmus test is if a company can increase their prices and not lose customers, that's kind of uh, dodgy and we should look into it. But of course, these companies are supposedly free, so that doesn't apply. And of course, the general principle should be when a company creates some kind of abusive conditions, whether it's higher price or giving up too much data or something else, and they don't lose customers, that's what's suspicious and we should look into it. So it was partly... Um, just naivete and, and, and not realizing what was going on and not wanting to realize. Partly it was that, that governments wanted to spy on people and, and figured that they could literally make a, a data mm -hmm. and that would help them keep citizens safe. Now it turns out that that kind of data doesn't actually help prevent things like terrorism. And now they're realizing that on the other hand, it's a huge risk for national security. Um, here are a couple of examples just to show this point. Maybe a year ago, the, the New York Times published an article in which two journalists who were not very tech savvy used to find out the location of the president of the United States. And this was through data that is easily uh, uh, accessible by buying it from data brokers. And they figured out who was, who had the phone of a secret service agency agent um, because they just correlated the president's schedule with this phone. And then they figured out where the president was. Uh, if the president of the United States is not safe from a couple of non-tech savvy journalists, mm -hmm. nobody is. <laughs> right. And the whole country is unsafe. Sure. Another example is hackers only need to hack about 10% of electrical appliances and turn them on at the same time to bring down the national grid. Now, just imagine that in the context of the pandemic, mm -hmm. how harmful that could be. So having this system of, of collecting, the, partly... I mean, the, the, the internet is, is insecure in large part to allow for the collection of personal data. And now governments have a motivation to change that because they're realizing it's actually very, very dangerous for national security. Well, it almost seems like, and we try to be very increasingly candid and transparent and, and where we can proactive about this, which is, you know, we, again, we cover, you know, a fair load of things from climate change to healthcare to, to things like this. And, um, you know, when you see stats like, um, you know, black moms in Illinois are six times more likely to die in or after childbirth than, than white moms. And you go, oh, well, if it was twice as bad, that would be a disaster, mm -hmm. right? But when it's six times as bad, you go, oh, that's because the system is designed that way. And it feels like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that that's what you're saying about up to this point, that the system was designed to allow for this harvesting because the governments wouldn't regulate them because they were doing it as well and they saw benefit in that. Is, is, that, does that, is that correct or am I off base? Yeah, that's correct. Um, we built the internet to be really insecure so we could collect data and the government had an interest in that, so they didn't do anything about it. And now we're realizing that our cybersecurity standards are so disastrous that we are in huge danger at the moment. I mean, I feel like we haven't even, I mean, look, again, you guys had Brexit and a bunch of other issues over there. Our capital got stormed mm -hmm. <laughs> a couple months ago, but I don't, I don't remember if it was the same week or the week before, but we had the, uh, is it the solar winds hack that apparently was absolutely catastrophic throughout the federal government to the point where they said it's going to take years to even figure out what was lost. And I feel like that's just buried in the news. It's true, and it's so complex, and it's so unclear that we don't know what the consequences of that are. We don't know if Russians still have access to many of those systems. We don't know whether they changed anything. It's really, really quite scary. How could we be that unprepared? That is so wild to me. 
It is wild. It, I, I don't have an answer. To yeah. That. No, I need, sorry. I no. was just sort of asking. the. No, world. I think it's a complicated <laughs> yeah. one. I think it like, it was a little bit of by design. I think it's a lot of antiquated systems. Um, I think it's a lot of like, you know, budgets for that sort of things were hold back. Um, you know, it's, Look, if you're an yeah. IT person, installing stuff for for hundreds, if not thousands of new people is a pain. So you always have to wait to do the newest technology because you have to make sure it doesn't break anything. So other things languish behind. And then it's, uh, you know, we always see the laughable headlines on CNN or whatever that the most popular password is one, two, three, four, five or whatever uh, it is. Yeah. A- everyone does that everywhere. Um, so I, it, it seems like it's a very comprehensive problem. But at the same time, uh, Carissa, like you were saying, it's it's... We have no idea what we don't know yet about the implications of of what happened with that. And that's going to keep happening as we try to electrify our grid and bring things online and make uh, smart meters uh, more available so that people can use uh, their solar panels and their batteries and their electric cars to feed back into the meter and get paid for them. But um, I believe what I, I'm trying to remember... Was it, in, was it in your book, or I'm trying to think if it was in your book or an article I read by you where you were talking about how unsecure smart meters are? Um, it's It seems like there's just enormous trade-offs as we, as we go forward. Yeah, another reason is because at the moment, companies don't have enough of an in- incentive to have good cybersecurity because mm-hmm. it's very expensive, it's invisible, so we as customers don't appreciate it because we don't know how to. We, we roughly know what a good door looks like. We have no idea what a good... <laughs> like cybersecurity app looks like. And if something goes wrong, usually the company gets a free pass and the ones who bear the brunt of it are citizens or the government. And that's why it's something that has to be regulated uh, by the government because companies will never do this on their own. Mm -hmm. They they have no reason to do it. Right. I think sounds great. She said she's optimistic, Brian. I know. I'm so sorry. Come on. Come on. (laughs) I got to get on board with your optimism. Sorry about that. Um, (laughs) <laughs> Let's do it through action here. Exactly. Um, yeah, Carissa, so, you know, our entire bread and butter uh, on this show is, is helping people understand, you know, how to think for themselves uh, about what is happening in science and and what exactly they, that they can do about it. Um, and we, we call those like our, our action steps, yeah? Um, and we really work to make sure that they're uh, reputable and effective. And for every topic like this one, uh, you know, we try to build a, a portfolio of action steps that that people can can take to improve the world. You know, uh, but also for themselves and their families uh, and their investments and companies um, to to really create systemic change. So let's get into that um, and let's start with you know the the personal uh, level. What are the most effective personal privacy? action steps, moves that people can can take right now? There are many steps. One is just choosing privacy-friendly alternatives. So instead of using WhatsApp, use Signal. Instead of using Gmail, use something like ProtonMail. Instead of using Google Search, use DuckDuckGo. Um, there are all kinds of, of friendly alternatives out there. Another thing that people can do and is very important is to choose the right devices. If you choose a device that is made by a company that earns their money mostly through personal data, you know that your data is going to be collected. There's a conflict of interest there. So choose a device from a company that earns their money selling hardware, not through selling your data. Um, Another important thing to do is to contact your political representatives. Tell them that you're worried about privacy. Ask them what they're doing to protect it. uh, Pressure them. That has a huge impact. Something else you can do is to write to companies and ask them for your data and ask them to delete your data. Even if you fail, creating that paper trail is super important because it shows regulators once you know there's a problem that you weren't consenting hmm. and that the company didn't act like they should have. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's super compelling. Um, as vis-a-vis calling representatives, we try to help make it specific for folks. Are there specific... Uh, and our listeners are about 70% U.S. and the rest is kind of split between Europe and, and Asia and, and uh, South Asia. Are there specific uh, bills or things like that that are um, in play that we should be speaking about? So at the moment, there are a few being discussed and it's unclear um, yeah, what's going to happen in the near future. But in general, in the U.S., for instance, now is the time to 
uh, pressure your, your political representatives to try to come up with a federal privacy law. That is the challenge right now. Okay. Hmm. Um, maybe we'll talk offline if there's any other folks we could uh, that you have recommendations for yeah, that we yeah. could we could talk to about that who are, who are in it um, and working on that. Um, yeah, that's pretty, do you do you have any and, and and it's totally understandable if you don't want to go on the record about this, but if you have specific recommendations for uh, like you were saying companies that 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 are not in the business of selling your stuff versus basically like are there are there any specific good guys or bad guys uh, as far as this goes? I, I hate to simplify it that most, but I'm trying to you know help people think through this because when they walk into a Target or a Walmart and and things are half off and the TV looks great. It's a hard one to uh, to persuade them to do otherwise if they can save four or five hundred bucks. Well, one way to think about it, I mean, just just do a search. The bad guys are pretty obvious, and the good search guys. For bad guys. Um, On it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bad guys tech. I'm sure they'll, they'll come up. Right. One way to think about it is that okay, you might save four hundred dollars now, but you're gonna pay for it later if you get discriminated against. If you get denied a loan, get denied a job, yeah. um, so you're not actually saving money. It's, it's more an illusion. Could you tell the story um, from your book uh, about the smart TVs and the um, sort of the, the the language behind them, as far as uh, what information they're collecting or when you think they're off and they're not off? Oh yeah. Um, so the privacy policy of the Samsung. TV was pretty chilling. It says something to the effect that um, you shouldn't have private conversations in front of your TV <laughs> if you don't want them <laughs> sent to third parties, which of course is ridiculous because your TV is usually in the middle of, of your house. Was, was that what, what you yeah, had in mind? Yeah, I mean, because, you know, we hear these stories about, oh, Alexa was listening and it turns out these people were manually listening so they could train it and they were listening to private conversations or they were listening to, to sex or fights or whatever it might be or domestic violence. And then, you know, they'll backtrack and say like, oh, we're not going to let those people do it anymore to be automated or, or only certain people have privileges. And then I believe it actually even happened with Apple with their smart speakers. But like you said, not everyone has those. Everyone has a TV and these, these smart ones like Samsung or Vizio or whatever it might be, they're in the middle of every home. You know, the index on how many people have a TV, you know, what percentage of people have TV is pretty high. Um, so it seems like, you know, do, do, should we just not opt to connect those to the internet? You know, I'm just, uh, I, I certainly don't. And one good idea is to buy stupid objects instead of smart ones. <laughs> um, so I go into stores and I just ask, like, I, I want something that's not connected to the Where's internet. Where's your oldest, worst thing? That's what I want. Basically, what's your stupidest object? <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess. yeah, exactly, exactly. What's your, yeah, exactly. Like, are you exactly. on a tin can with a string oh, right. calling I love, us? I love this. This is incredible. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Are, 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 let me ask you this. Is there places where these companies are doing good with our data? Is, are, are there, are, is there examples out there of places that have used this in an effective way, either individually or for the public good, where the trade-offs are worth it? Because I can't imagine there are situations where there aren't trade-offs. But you, you seem so optimistic about, about being able to control them and regulate them and, and make this work and give us more of our data and look at more of what these companies can do. Is there anyone out there? You know, we just, we basically, we just, we just had this conversation with two incredible guys who are working on the new uh, global.health a project and it's supported by Johns Hopkins and Oxford and Harvard and Northeastern and Google.org is 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 paying for a bunch of it and, and things like that. And they're trying to, you know, build as many COVID records as they can to try to understand how this thing really works across demographics and DNA and what we can do uh, going forward for COVID, but also for for future infectious disease work, because we've done kind of a poor job with that. And, and you want to cheer for a project like that. And, and I do, but, you know, I also ask them, you know, how do you solve for trust from the beginning because of how people feel and because so many of these companies and projects aren't trustworthy? You know, where are the good examples and are there any? Well, a few good examples are, are companies like DuckDuckGo that manage to offer a really good search and they don't collect your data and they don't use it for marketing. Another really good example is Signal, but Signal is not a, is a nonprofit, so they don't collect your data. In in terms of cases in which companies do collect your data, but it's it's justified and they use it in a good way, it's very hard to know because at the moment it's just the data economy is all over the place. 
So whenever mm-hmm. you give your data, there's a risk that it's, it's going to be, it's going to end up in the wrong hands. So I think it would be much easier for companies to have a good use of the data if we banned selling data and if we banned personalized content and if we banned many of the practices that we have today, if it wasn't profitable to collect your personal data, then companies would only collect it when they need it and they would use it for good purposes because otherwise it's a liability to them. That seems to make sense. It's the it's the sale, it's the selling mechanism right. that's that's really the crutch of this thing. It seems like I mean it's Facebook taking, you know, Apple turning on the um the new disclaimers they made every app put out with iOS 14 and Facebook taking out, you know, New York Times ads and and putting out their own disclaimer saying, "Well, this is going to hurt small businesses." They're not going to give this thing up willingly. No, not at all. And as long as we allow for personal data to be bought and sold, we create the wrong incentives, at least two of them. We create the incentive of companies collecting more data than they need, and that is hugely dangerous for national security and for individuals. And we create the incentive for them to sell it to the highest bidder, who is often not the institution or person with the best interest at heart. All right. Well, That, uh, that clarifies things. Wild. Um, <laughs> Chris, it's been, it's been, uh, we've had, we've probably kept you for, for pretty close to as long as you uh, need to be here. So, uh, first of all, thank you so, so very much. I'm glad that we were able to make this happen today. Sorry about the confusion. Um, it's Brian's fault. It's my, please just blame everything on me. I Always Brian. He's a big, he's a big supporter. No, he's a big, for, he's a big fan of daylight savings and it's not pretty. It's, it's not great. Um, um but we, <laughs> We do. We would love to uh, ask you. We have a few like little last questions we ask everybody. Um, does that sound okay? Sure. Okay. Um, uh, Carissa, when was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Um, maybe it was when I was teaching kids and, and especially adults to read. That seemed incredibly powerful to learn that an adult wasn't able to take the bus because they couldn't read the signs was just such an eye opener for me. Mm-hmm. And to be able to teach a person to read seemed kind of magic. That's incredible. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, Doctor, who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? In the past six months. You can't say Brian, so just skip over that one. I know. You've got to pick somebody else. Yeah. I really enjoyed Christopher Wiley's book, Mindfuck. I thought that was very interesting and, and it, it explains with a lot of detail um, what what happened with Cambridge Analytica. Another book that um, I highly recommend about these topics that I read more or less recently was Edward Snowden's biography, autobiography. Uh, yeah, boy, did he set off a, quite the chain of events here. Yeah. Um, yeah, wow. we, there's so much we wouldn't know without that. Um, I, yeah, I've had Mindfuck on my list for a while. Do you feel like it's still pretty relevant to what we're going through now? understanding what happened then? Yeah, for sure. Even though Cambridge Analytica doesn't exist anymore, there are about 300 firms that are very similar Mm -hmm. that are still doing what they do. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, Brian, bring bring it home. Bring it on home. Hey, this is a really great one. I love this, especially when um, somebody has such a high pressure, so much to think about all the time for everybody else. What do you do for yourself uh, when you feel overwhelmed? What is your self-care? I go out to walk and I read novels. That's pretty great. Those are two great ones. Holy cow. Um, and then now I think we always, we love this question. I think you just answered it, uh, unless there's another one you want to throw on. But we, lo- we have a little um, collection of, of uh, books that we have um, uh, online that everybody can access to, uh, to, to purchase if they want. Books that our guests recommend. Uh, you obviously just mentioned two. Anything else that you've read recently that's, um, I don't know, changed your thinking in some way or... Was, a, was about a topic you hadn't considered before? I, I more or less recently read uh, Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. It's not about tech at all. Oh, that's okay. But, I, but it, it's one of those books that really left a mark. That's awesome. That's, that's an awesome. incredible recommendation. Doctor, where can our listeners uh, follow you online? Mostly on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is just my name, Carissa Velis, and I rant. <laughs> Perfect. That's awesome. Um, well, uh, doctor, we can't thank you enough for your time today and for all the work you're putting in to, to make this, uh, something that is understood better and at the same time, uh, actionable so that, so that we can start to turn this ship around, uh, before it gets even more out of hand. Um, we really do appreciate it. So, so thank you so much, uh, for coming on and, and for all that you do. 
My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jam and music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>